You are listening to Digfin Vox. Digfin is an online media group covering the digital transformation of financial services. Our podcast comes to you twice a month from our base in Hong Kong, Asia's leading financial center, where East meets West and developed markets meet the emerging consumer. Go to our website, www.ditchfingroup.com, so you don't miss out on our in-depth daily stories on how your clients and competitors are changing their business models across asset management, banking, capital markets, and insurance. Your podcast host is James Lindsay, and this is the voice of tech innovation and finance. This is Ditchfing Fox. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to DigFinVox. This week, we'll be talking about blockchain within trade finance, particularly the HSBC Cargill ING letter of credit involving a 24-hour soybean trade and a couple of recent Chinese fintech IPOs on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and what this means for others which are following suit. Hi, Jane. Welcome back. Great to be here, James. So you've just been off to New York yeah, uh, for big these, Apple. the CB Insights event. How was that? Yeah, it was interesting. So, you know, obviously we, we spend all our time in Asia Pacific and I thought it was a good idea to see what's going on with all the, the big fintech names from the U.S. So uh, it was a fintech specific event? Or? Yes, it was a fintech event and they had a lot of the, a lot of the, the classic uh, names in American fintech who presented on stage Names like Wealthfront, Robinhood, Cabbage. And, you know, I just thought, I hear about these companies, but I never mm-hmm. really get a chance to understand them in any meaningful way. Uh, and, and probably our readers may, may feel the same. So I thought, you know, just take a few days out to understand who some of these people are, what their story is. And now some of them are very mature. So uh, they're, they're going through a new set of, of, of uh, development pains, I guess you could say. Sure. What were the kind of the key takeaways from from the event? I mean, what, what and what are the differences really between uh, American and Asian fintech? Well, the U.S. is a, a big market unto itself. It's obviously mature in, in terms of being a developed market economy, uh, unlike you know, let's say China, which is huge, but yeah. you know, for very different circumstances. Uh, and the opportunities there tend to be kind of specific to the U.S. Uh, areas in you know that that deal with the idiosyncrasies of the healthcare system, the tax system, the retirement, the legal uh, mm. framework for retirement. So and not all tends it, to be very fragmented across Asia. Yeah, that's, well, that's fragmented also. I'm just saying that some of these stories are kind of specific. But broadly, you're dealing with the same themes, robo-advisory, you know, I mean, Wealthfront is the, is the creator of that, really. Um, uh, cabbage for SME lending, um, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch and we've been Credit Karma, which is another very interesting company. There's, there's a whole bunch of them. So we'll, we'll be just putting out some little snippets about, about some of these companies for the readers, just to give them a, a flavor of what's going on in the U.S. market and, and, and really the, the early generation of Silicon Valley style fintechs. Look forward to that. So um, you've recently also done a deep dive within the blockchain trade finance yes. world. Uh, so last month, specifically, uh, HSBC announced it issued a letter of credit financing uh, over a blockchain. So the deal involved supporting the shipment of soybeans, the famous soybean trade, between two units. So it was uh, Cargill um, and ING. So this is a real-life working example of how blockchain can actually transform complicated and lengthy processes. Can you just explain more about how this all, all works? So 
people have been, banks, people, I don't know, the, the industry has been looking at blockchain and trying to figure out how and in what circumstances is a fit. And trade, trade finance has, has long been touted as a, a, a great example of why blockchain might be applicable. In this case, that's because trade and the financing of trade, global trade, is uh, a very paper-intensive process. It involves a lot of different players from a lot of different countries, corporates, banks, uh, uh, shipping freighters, insurance companies, uh, export credit agencies, and they all have their own ways of doing things. Um, it's very fragmented. Nobody has ever been able to impose their own proprietary means of processing or automating this stuff. There's just a ton of paperwork, a lot of documentation, really tedious. Uh, and the banks are often hired to kind mm. of sort it out on behalf of usually the main buying corporate. So uh, it, it's an enormous, of course, trade is, is enormous. And, uh, and if you can bring efficiencies to this and cut out a lot of that paperwork, uh, then, you know, there could be some real gains to be had for, for everyone, except, of course, some of the, some of the paper processors. Okay, interesting. So what, this is, um, uh, so what, what, why did you write about this uh, particularly? Well, it was announced, um, and it, it, you know, it was announced as a, a, a live transaction that took place over a, a blockchain that's been developed. In this case, it's using the underlying tech of R3, which is a consortium of banks. Uh, R3 yeah. is not the only player in this game. IBM has, has its version, and then there's, there's others out there. Um, the, the Hong Kong and Singapore governments are also working on their own version. Yeah. Uh, other banks are doing stuff on, on their own privately. Yeah. But this was, this was a, I thought, a big deal because it, you know, it, it was really a, a solid deployment. Um, and they're, they're building this with the goal of trying to get as many people to use this as possible. Um, and the people at HSBC were very emphatic on the point that this was not an HSBC tech. It's not an HSBC yeah. project, although, of course, somebody's got to take the lead uh, and, and get things going. But, but HSBC, along with other financial institutions, has been driving this. Uh, and, and, and they're also working with the, the competitor products that IBM is, is, is working on as well. So they're not tied to this per se, but obviously they, they saw an opportunity here to, to, to make something happen. And, and they did. Sure. So how, how big are the potential efficiencies within this in terms of, you know, say days to or months to days? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, months to, months to hours, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Or at least weeks to hours. So this one trade was all the the whole thing was was settled in twenty four hours. What that process could normally take, you know, um, several weeks uh, to gather all the material and then get it all signed off by all the parties. Here, it's all on all the information ends up on on a blockchain and it's everybody can see it at the same time and and there's there's smart contracts that that yep. determine you know the who's what's when's and how's and and and. Uh, and if you can get everybody to, to agree on those protocols, then the, then things start to, to move forward. Okay. You mentioned uh, in your article Voltron, which Voltron. is a cartoon uh, character robot thingy from yeah yes. yeah so uh, from, so from from uh, late night reruns on uh, on dodgy channels yeah and um, yeah what is what is Voltron Voltron so. Uh, there's a number of these different financial projects that R3 is working on. I mean, R3 is all about financial services on blockchain or, or distributed ledger tech. Um, and s 
somewhere in that process, the developers there decided to label this thing Voltron. I don't know why. Uh, you know, I think it's something that came out of New York. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, just it's an internal name. It's not a brand name. There's no, no one's going to, you know, no one outside is going to see this is a Voltron product, but it's just what they call it. Yeah. So, in, okay. in, you know, and to differentiate it from other projects going on, so everybody knew this is the Voltron thing. And, uh, and I just used that in the article because it, it helps differentiate this particular project and, and you know, for, for letters of credit. Um, and, and, you know, if you can't have a little bit of fun, then go home. <laughs> uh, so what, what are the, um, the next steps really? So this initiative or these initiatives, they're just pilot tests at the moment. Yes. Um, this needs to be commercialized somehow. Yes. How, how does that happen? Just get everyone on board onto the same one? Well, there's still tech, there's still technical issues that need to be addressed and are being addressed. Uh, by the so R three is the they they provide the distributed ledger let's say the operating system and the business logic the rules that determine how to use it the actual app of what you want to do with this is written by somebody else in this case HSBC brought in a Hong Kong based developer called Crypto BLK Crypto Block which mm-hmm. they they actually wrote or led the project uh, with the various banks teams to create this particular Voltron app. Um, but it still needs work on scalability, privacy, um, backups if something goes wrong, if there's a hack or, or an accident, um, the ability to, you know, the throughput, so how many, how many activities can you put through a single node uh, on, on this blockchain, um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of technical stuff like that to basically make sure that everybody is convinced that this sucker is good to go 24-7 at scale with involving hundreds of players on it, thousands of players on it. Um, and it's not there yet. Um, but these are, these are mm-hmm. my understanding is addressable issues. It requires time and resource, but it's, it, you know, yeah. it, it, should, it should play out. And I guess especially if, when you open it up to many more products. More yeah, products, which more players. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they're trying to build it for, with that scalability in mind. So there's a technical aspect that will just require continual development um, and, and investment, uh, and then and then it's getting more people to use it, um, and this will be right now we're at a, a phase with all of these blockchain products. Let's just stick with global trade because that's such a huge industry anyway. It's eight or nine trillion dollars uh, a year that that's that gets financed through some kind of banking arrangement. Yeah. Um, you know, the, right now we're at a phase where everyone's kind of working on different projects. The banks are involved in different initiatives simultaneously. So are the big corporates yeah. around the world. Everyone's trying to figure out what's the, what's, what works best for them. Some of these might end up being, say, may, maybe in one industry in particular, a, you know, in, in shipping or auto or I don't know what. Uh, uh, maybe one standard will come to prevail and perhaps it'll be a different standard elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so, so are we kind of at risk of having multiple islands well, of blockchain that, that's, around? That's the longer term risk. I mean, right now, I think it's natural that you're going to have a bunch of these things in play because people have to kind of work out what fits their model, what they like best. You know, someone's got to attract the critical mass of everybody yeah. to get on it. Um, and the, um, the goal, of course, of course, for the R3s and the IBMs, they, they want it to be theirs. Um, there might be, given the size of the marketplace, there's probably room for more than just one. 
but there wouldn't be a room for too many because you then start to bring in uh, yeah. you, you start to refragment what you're trying to, to and the whole point of this was that it was supposed to be one kind of unitized uh, standard, standard protocol, protocol. Yeah, yeah. yeah because it, at least in this project this project's about letters of credit which is one slice of the global trade finance playbook and letters it's about of credit 10% is that right yeah 10, 10 to 15 I've heard different numbers and um, but anyway, it's a, it's a shrink, it's big, but but a shrinking overall uh, business. Um, but but letters of credit are themselves commodities in the sense that a letter of credit from HSBC is the same as one for Standard Chartered, it's the same from one from Bank of America or ANZ, um, and you know so what you don't want to introduce layers of complexity into into that. Um, into that process. So if everybody ends up on one platform for, let's say, letters of credit, then uh, that would be easier for the whole industry and there'd just be one protocol, one language. But, you know, I don't know if that would happen or not. Uh, maybe at some point one of these big ones wins out. Or maybe, you know, the industry requires a little bit of differentiation and, they'll, you know, players may welcome some competition. We'll see. I think ultimately it would probably be the big corporates that decide this because... Mm. They're the most influential players, so um, it, it, it may come down to what what the what they want. In this in this world, banks are are merely another service provider. They're probably kind of a high end, intelligent one, but but they are they're not the ones who really call the shots. Okay, sure. So, what do you think of a, the next steps where need to be taken for this to succeed? Well, I mean, I think we're going to see more of these uh, projects being being piloted. Uh, and uh, you know, and then it's just these these tech builds, and then who's attracting the critical mass of, of users? Um, you know, it's easy to also work between the corporates and just the banks, but as, as I said, there's lots of other players involved. We need to for these to really catch on. You need to get a lot of other kinds of organizations willing to throw their lot into these protocols. There could be some integration challenges there political challenges just to get everybody to sign up and, and there's going to be rival ideas so you don't want to just say oh well this is it everybody and, and, and that's it you have to adhere to this it doesn't work that way so they have to, you know they have, to, they have to make people want to join these things and, uh, and, and that's going to be a mix of technological advancement um, salesmanship and, mm. and figuring out what ultimately the big customers really need what, and they'll, they'll probably be the ones that drive it in the end cool Thank you very much, Shane. Hey, my pleasure. Cheers. Today, Karen is going to enlighten us uh, on the recent fintech IPOs within the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So, how are you today, Karen? Very good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Huifu, which is the Chinese payment fintech, yes. uh, and Vcredit, which is a credit card refinancing company based in China as well. They've both just listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange Yes. Uh, with several others within the pipeline. Yeah. Um, so can, first of all, can you just tell us what both these companies do? Start with, with Huifu. So Huifu is a payment company. They have, um, they have several business. One is the point of sale service, mobile payment and cross-border payments. They also provide fintech technology to SMEs to help them acquire customers. So Vcredit, on the other hand, it's a credit card refinancing company. So basically, they help customers to pay their credit card and the customers own Vcredit money. 
Okay, sure. So with Huifu, um, how big is the market? Because, I mean, as far as I have previously been aware, the, the two big uh, payment companies yes. were Tempe and, and Alipay. And Alipay. Yeah. yeah. So um, Huifu is not like a huge giant in the field. They, uh, they take up, I think, 2% of the market shares, and which is a distance to... Ten pay who takes up thirty five percent and Alipay who takes up twenty five percent of the market shares. Okay, so they take over half the market is by them, and and then Huifu are fairly fairly minuscule at two percent. Yeah. yeah, I think Huifu is one of the other like small SMEs that it's it's in the market. Yeah. Okay, so given its uh, relatively small size, what was it valued at when it IPO'd? Um, they generate around. I think the uh, listing price is seven point five Hong Kong dollar, and they generate a lot around two hundred million um, US dollar in this IPO. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Uh, and then more on um, on 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 V Credit. What was really their business model? So business uh, business model of V Credit is helping the. Uh, um, customers to refinance their credit cards and then they charge a service fee and interest uh, of the repayment of the customers. It's more like, a, I think their models is more like a financial institutions, like a bank, for example. Okay, sure. Um, and when they when they listed, how were they, how were they received by the market? So if both were oversubscribed? Yeah, both, well, it's very sarcastic a little bit because... Both companies were oversubscribed, but the share price performance was not really well. You see, um, you can see that Huifu's share price collapsed around 6.9% when it's just list. Uh, because the IPO price was 7.5 Hong Kong dollar, but when it list, it opened at 6.89 Hong Kong dollar per share which is 6.9% below its IPO price. And up to now, it hasn't go back to his um, IPO price yet. And um, Vcredit, on the other hand, is a little bit better. It opened at 20 Hong Kong dollar per share, but um, the price went down for a little bit and closed at 21 around 21 Hong Kong dollar by the end of the week, but now you see the price go down to around um, 18 now. So the share mm. price performance was not really well. Okay, okay. Um, and are there much more in the pipeline? Uh, what, what, what else have we got to come? Um, from the Hong Kong Exchange website, we can see there are some companies queuing to go IPO, including 51 Credit Card, which provides credit card management services, and FinUp Finance Technology, who is a peer-to-peer -peer lender. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and given that these are the, the first uh, to, to list on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange from uh, the mainland within the, the FinTech area, yeah. I mean, what does this really mean? Um, what signal is this given to to everyone else? Um, I think as the first Chinese payment company to come to list in Hong Kong, uh, when we use Huifu payment as an example, we can see that um, Huifu's price, IPO price, was too high because um, you have to, I think, 
for those companies that is planning to come to Hong Kong, they have to realize that some tech companies are too small in their field because it's dominated by the giants, and also they some of them are not profitable yet. So analysts pointed out a very important thing that if Hong Kong list companies are too expensive, investors will go back to New York. But um, they also say that not performing well in their share price doesn't mean that Chinese fintech company will abandon Hong Kong, but just um, they need to leave more upside for their investors. But I think um, this is a very good encouragement for Chinese uh, fintech companies to go IPO in Hong Kong. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, so given the kind of plethora of, um, mm-hmm. of, of listings which are going to happen and, and have happened, uh, is this really down to the listing rule changes? So uh, we all know that um, Hong Kong, this Hong Kong Stock Exchange allowed uh, dual share class listings. Is this really the only reason why people are now coming here? And instead of going to um, to uh, the New York Stock Exchange, which they had previously? Yeah, right. Because New York was used to be a very good venue for Chinese fintech companies to go IPO, but now you see some of them are coming to Hong Kong. So speaking of the reason, I think the restructure of the listing rules in Hong Kong is certainly one of the reasons. And I think... For Hong Kong itself, um, the investors here are more familiar with the Chinese fintech landscape and they understand the business model better than the investors in the US. And another reason, I think, speaking of why now, why in the year of 2018, um, one of the investors told me that um, the reason could be the financial reports they need to show to their investors are up to 2017 when most of the fintechs have very positive growth rate. So this could be one of the reasons because when you see uh, prospectors of 51 credit, they spend a lot of money uh, in their marketing. You see it's 152% of their total revenue in the year of 2015 and 32% of their revenue in 2016. So they spent a lot of money in the marketing campaign and now they see the result. They they, they, They grab the market share and now it's a good time for those companies who have certain market shares and certain data client base to cash in in Hong Kong. Well, because getting... As the regulations are getting tighter, it's getting difficult for these companies to like swept into the markets as before. So maybe the growth, the rapid growth rate is not going to continue in the year of 2018. So if they wait until 2019 to go IPO, their financial report may not look so good. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I'm James Lindsay, and when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the commercial director of Digifin Group. If you enjoyed this podcast, please listen again and share it on social media so your friends can find it too.